Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Coleridge did not, like Wordsworth, dismiss political economy from his notice disdainfully as a puerile tissue of truisms or of falsehood, not less obvious but actually addressed himself to the subject, fancied he had made discoveries in the science, and even promised us a systematic work on its whole compass. Now, who do you think said that, Neil? I couldn't say that, and I couldn't really guess the subject that he's talking about, but I'm sure you're about to enlighten us. Well, I'm going to try. It was actually the 19th century poet Monke. I think it would be unfair to call him a poet. He was more more of a sort of fanboy of the Lakeland poets and opium addict Thomas de Quincey about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, best known perhaps as the author of Kubla Khan, but also the hand behind vulgar errors respecting taxes and taxation, a waspish economic tract. Ah, there's the key word. (laughs) It's economics time again. Yeah, yeah, it's economics time. And Coleridge, you'll you'll be equally astonished to learn, wasn't alone. Many poets seem to have been drawn to the dismal science. Hilaire Belloc, author of the Cautionary Tales, romantically called for the restoration of medieval guilds, while Percy Shelley railed against the national debt as an engine for the enslavement of the poor. Jonathan Swift condemned mercantilism and the evils of relying on a currency that could be easily debased by a foreign power. Now, many of these poets had very firm opinions, according to a splendid book called The Poet's Guide to Economics, available in all the very best bookshops. But what did they think, these poets, and how on the money were their economic observations? Well, to help us penetrate this important cultural thicket, we're joined by the author, former diplomat John Ramsden. He's hopefully going to walk us through some of the important insights of our greatest poets and then help us award our own Nobel Prize in economics for poetry. John, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Neil. I thought we might start, really, by talking a little bit about your book, and what drew you originally to this subject? It's a very entertaining book. and you, you enjoyed it too, didn't you, Neil? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, eye-opening. And uh, I never knew what such brilliant poets could produce such rubbish econ- economics. <laughs> that's, that's not universal. I think that's a bit unfair. I think it's a bit unfair. We shouldn't prejudge. We shouldn't prejudge. Uh, but maybe, John, you could also tell us a bit about why you think poets were drawn to what's often seen as a rather dry subject. Well, well, certainly. I mean, if I can just push back a bit against Neil, they certainly produced some very rubbish economics. But I think at the same time, they were much better critics of economics than producers of their own economics. And, mm. you know, in some cases, I mean, economists seem to have believed some very odd things at times in the past. And, you know, the poets were quite good at disposing of some of these very odd beliefs. What drew them to the subject? Economics was becoming what Badgett called the common sense of the nation. I mean, it was invading the cultural space and taking over as a sort of unstated religion. Maybe, John, we should just root this in time. The poets you're writing about really span from the late 17th century to the mid-20th century. Is that, that, that's fair, isn't it? It, it? it is, yes. It goes very neatly from the foundation of the Bank of England in 1694, and we start with Defoe three years yeah. later, and it ends with Ezra Pound um, in 1944, 
two years before the Bank of England was finally nationalized. So yes, you're quite right to haul me up there because of course people like Defoe and Swift weren't reacting against economics which hadn't yet taken over the public space. But by the time of of Coleridge, this was a very real problem, certainly for Coleridge, who who described economics as a temple of Tescalipoca, referring to the sort of Aztec, I think, practice of human sacrifice. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) (laughs) Even I think that's a bit extreme. Yes. Were any of the poets you write about, were, were any of their economic ideas taken seriously at the time or essentially were they either humorous or sort of uh, voices off commentators on the thought of the day? Oh, oh, no, certainly. I mean, Swift, after all, you know, became a a national hero in Ireland for seeing off uh, attempts from London to debase the currency. And Scott did much the same service for Scotland. I mean, Scott's image to this day adorns every banknote printed by the Bank of Scotland in recognition of it was he who saved the Scottish banknote in 1826. The one thing I I thought when I was going through your book, and maybe this is an overly reductive approach, is you can sort of detect the way that thought changes, advances or whatever over the period that you're poets are living through. So I would split them up into the sort of 18th century, I'd call them sort of Augustans who were essentially interested in new ideas about credit and industry. You then have the romantics who are going through a period of, of great growth when there are problems, social problems, but there's still a, a kind of enthusiasm for finding ways to increase prosperity. And then you get to the Victorians where effectively there's almost too much prosperity and they're rather sickened by it all. They see it as a tremendous waste of energy and effort and want to go back to the Middle Ages by and large. And then you have the kind of 20th century where I have to say, I think some of some of them, particularly Ezra Pan, go right off the rails and get very confused about <laughs> how an economy should work at all. I, I think what I would add to your sort of slicing of the cake is the emergence of ideology. Shelley actually is very interesting in that I think some of the things he says are sort of proto-Marxist. What he says about finance, Mm. essentially commodifying a lot of things which shouldn't have to be commodified and thereby creating a lot of losers, mainly among the poor. I think Mm. this is a train of thought which, you know, pops up later on among the Victorians and all all this calling for guilds and and what have you, you then get people like Shaw and Morris who are basically following a sort of, you know, Marxist train of thought. And you get others in, you know, in reaction to this, like Belloc. So you get, I think, an impoverishment of this debate as ideology takes hold. Yes. And there are some common themes. Almost every period you describe is concerned in one way or another about paper money. And by and large, extremely suspicious of bankers. It's hard to find anyone who has a particularly good word to say about bankers, apart from, of course, from Walter Scott, who thinks that they should be entrusted with the issuance of their own local banknotes. No, no, you're, you're giving away my punchline. <laughs> well, you can... Oh, Defoe is pro-banking. Defoe is pro-banking, I'd say. He is, but I think there is a indeed a common theme on on finance, which runs from Defoe right through to the end. I mean, first of all, a tremendous curiosity about money as Mm. such. I mean, the classical economists 
were not really interested in money. It was a seen as a sort of veil, mm. just a neutral veil. You know, and the, the economists peered below this veil to see the underlying transactions. Mm. But you, you can see that with Defoe. I mean, what he has to say about credit mm. and credit being a coy mistress, you know, I could mm. perhaps read some of it to you in these, you know, as we face a banking, you know, possible banking crisis looming um, at us yeah. again. It's not that he's against banking, but he, he is very much against stock jobbers who he sees as undermining faith in the public credit and being therefore a menace to the real economy. Well, no, nobody likes the middlemen because uh, unless you know what you're doing, they look as though they're just uh, stripping a bit out of the middle all the time for, for no effort. One of the things that struck me is the, the rise of the national debt and whether or not this was a good thing or a terrible evil which would catch up with us one day. Uh, I think there's a sort of almost a great divide there between those who say, well, actually, it's a sort of engine of prosperity rather than a millstone round the necks of the next generation, a debate which I think continues to this day. Well, it's partly a debate about growth. Those who believe in the, the objective is to grow the economy as opposed to therefore believe it that the national debt can contribute to that growth. And those who basically believe that everything ultimately will end in a sort of happy stasis with uh, everyone just sitting around milling their own corn and <laughs> brewing their own beer, <laughs> who tend to be rather more suspicious, <laughs> suspicious of why, I, I think why we, we're getting in hock. To I think these, we tried that in the Middle Ages. Ages. It wasn't a great success. <laughs> well, in, in, in fairness to my poets, I, I should point out that Adam Smith, no less, described the, the financing of wars through the national debt as a pernicious system. Yes, that's true. But that's because he's against war, isn't it? Uh, yes, because he regarded the, the public, you know, indulging in cheap jingoism, which they weren't actually having to pay for, indeed, was mm. the sort of picture he painted. Being historical, you know, this was a period when, by and large, the people who had money were, in fact, landowners and people who did no work. And, and the, you know, there was a minority, of course, of enterprising of entrepreneurs and what have you, but they weren't necessarily the moneyed class. Now, you can't really blame the moneyed class for wanting to hang on to it since they were in such a privileged position. Uh, of course yes. not. But, I but, mean, uh, I'm, not, I'm not advocating <laughs> it, but I'm saying that well, that's, I don't know. You know, Shelley, that's why they Shelley was back. A, Shelley was a rentier, but he was a sort of self-loathing rentier. Did he get disinherited? He probably did. So they solved no, that problem. No, um, well, well, what happened was when... <laughs> For a long time, he lived basically on, on taking out loans at usurious rates against his inheritance. And then I think what happened was when it, when it was, I think his grandfather died, there was then a sort of settlement within the family that gave him um, a more settled income. So he was never really disinherited. And his son, of course, then did inherit. It's a very old title and did inherit. And there's a, a wonderful story about Mary Shelley trying to fix him up with a boarding school mm. and the headmaster saying, we, we teach our young men to think for themselves. And Mary Shelley says, oh, please don't teach, teach him to think like <laughs> everybody else. <laughs> Very good. Now, what we want to do is we want to, I think it's probably worth sort of switching the angle of attack now. And first of all, go through some of the poets. And I'll, I'll just give a quick list just for the listener to know who's in the book. As we say, we start in the late 17th, early 18th century with Daniel Defoe and, and Jonathan Swift. We zip on to the 19th century in the Romantics. We've got Shelley, Coleridge and Scott and De Quincey. 
And then we move into the sort of rather more lugubrious era of the Victorians, and we have Ruskin and William Morris, I suppose Shaw as well, George Bernard Shaw. And then we come into the Edwardians and after, and we've got Hilaire Belloc, a humorous poet, and Ezra Pound, an American, the only foreigner in the, in the list, who, of course, ends up holed up in Italy, as you say, uh, wanted by, by his own army as a traitor. What would be great is if, if you could pick out some of the poets and talk a little bit about the ones you like. Yeah, maybe we, we ought to start with Defoe. I mean, not, not least because this wonderful remark he makes somewhere, writing upon trade was the whore I really dated upon and designed to have taken up with, which <laughs> should be on every financial journalist's fridge magnet, I'd have, I'd have thought. Um, <laughs> I mean, he, he was a businessman. I mean, and, and, you know, he actually spent time in debtor's prison because he got involved in maritime insurance and went bust. With, you know, all that's going on in the banking world at the moment, it would be worth just saying a few words about Defoe on credit. Yeah. Here we are three years after the Bank of England is founded. He's already saying, well, hang on, this is being run entirely for the benefit of its private owners. And yet, you know, what could be more useful than a bank? could have a huge benefit to our inland trade and coming up with ideas for reforming it. He seizes the importance of credit. He says, credit makes the soldier fight without pay, the armies march without provisions, and it makes tradesmen keep open shop without stock. The force of credit is not to be described by words. It is an impregnable fortification, either for a nation or for a single man in business. And he that has credit is invulnerable whether he has money or no, nay, it will make money. It makes paper pass for money and fills the exchequer and the banks with as many millions as it pleases upon demand. Yes, that's mm. fantastic. We did a podcast recently on the national debt and there is a, an anonymous pamphleteer who's believed to have been Daniel Defoe came out with this lovely line which said, let us be a nation deep in debt <laughs> rather than one of slaves owing nothing. <laughs> And basically extols the virtues of running up debts as a sort of way of uh, magnifying the power. That's very good. So, but that's enough from him, I think. I mean, I can jog on if you like to Shelley. Um, I think what's interesting about Shelley, apart from the fact that you know he was one of the poets who actually managed to get some economics into his actual verse, he was very suspicious of the whole credit and the national debt, which he saw as a playground for the unscrupulous, basically. And, and what he said, in essence, was, look, bankers are able to conjure money out of pretty much out of thin air, well beyond the gold they actually have. You know, inevitably, the people who have access to credit are the rich and the sophisticated who have rich and sophisticated tastes. And they take that gold, which is purchasing power, and they take it into the marketplace and they distort what the market produces. They, they take away from the commodity goods of the poor and put purchasing power into all the fancy goods of the rich because, says he, we still have the same number of working hands and the same amount of productive capacity, only now the same number of labourers have not only to feed themselves but to feed twice the number of idle rentiers with four times the number of expensive tastes. So that was his sort of analysis of the situation. Yes. Well, that's a very common theme, isn't it? The idea the commodification of sort of labour being a bad thing. Well, it's Marx, isn't it? And, and indeed, Richard Holmes, you know, in this wonderful biography of Shelley, calls the pamphlet he wrote about Queen Charlotte, he calls it the first recognisably proto-Marxist text in the English language. Mm. But we must do Coleridge, because he's my pick. We must do Coleridge. 
who I, th I think is, you know, is a very interesting figure. I mean, remember, Coleridge was described by John Stuart Mill, who was the sort of um, leading mm. economist of his day, as an arrant driveler in economics. Yes. So, you know, this is the point I'm trying to make, is that some of these people may have seemed arrant drivelers to the great experts of their day, but actually tonight have a point. Mm. So, so just explain to us what Coleridge espoused in summary. His basic message was... Yeah, the principles of selling low and uh, buying low and selling high, the basic principles of, of a market economy are fine, but they must be counterbalanced. He said if you get the what he called the overbalance of the commercial spirit, mm. you're heading for trouble, uh, which of course is what Schumpeter thought. And one of the illustrations he gives of this is what he called Icarian credit. Yeah. And it sort of posits a system which is always striving towards Equilibrium mm. is, has inbuilt stabilizers, but but Coleridge says no no no. But because of the financial system, it actually has inbuilt instability, and he posits this Icarian, this cycle of Icarian credit, which to me looks a bit like the Hyman Minsky scheme of things. So, shall I shall I read it? Yes, do. So he says, um, within the last sixty years, there have occurred at intervals of about twelve or thirteen years each certain periodical revolutions of credit. I ought to have said gradual expansions of credit ending in sudden contractions or ascensions to a certain utmost possible height, which has been different in each successive instance. But in every instance, the attainment of this, its net plus ultra, has been instantly announced by a rapid series of explosions. In mercantile language, a crash and a consequent precipitation of the general system. For a short time, this Icarian credit, this illegitimate offspring of confidence, seems to lie stunned by the fall. But soon recovering, again it strives upward. Alarm and suspicion gradually diminish into a judicious circumspectness. But by little and little, circumspection gives way to the desire and emulous ambition of doing business, till impatience and incaution on one side, tempting and encouraging headlong adventure, want of principle and confederacies of false credit on the other, the movements of trade become yearly gaily and giddier and end at length in a vortex of hopes and blizzards, of blinding passions and blind practices, which should have been left where alone they ought ever to have been found among the wicked lunacies of the gaming table. He's uh, described the trade cycle, really. But what, where he's interesting is also that he sort of looks ahead to remedies, which makes him kind of feel a bit... You, you make the point that he sort of touches on ideas about the state dampening out the business cycle by almost in Keynesian ways of, of substituting demand when the cycle crashes to keep everyone employed and going. Yes, indeed, because he paints this picture of the national debt as the reservoir, and then the water trickling down, you know, with the gardener sort of directing the flows, you know, into the different parts of the economy. And he paints a picture of a sort of circular economy, which after all, you know, it was a hundred years later that people actually began to, I believe they even made hydraulic models to show how it all worked. Yeah. And, and what he said was it, taxation is fine so long as it's wisely spent and goes straight into spending money with entrepreneurs who then invest. And indeed, he, he had, the, to my mind, incredibly modern thought of saying, if all this credit results in a little bit of inflation, it's not the end of the world, because it means that people can't just sit back and enjoy their rents. They actually have to bestir themselves. Yeah. Scott is a very romantic story, because, I mean, he, he saw off an attempt by London, effectively to, to abolish 
any Scottish pound notes under the under value of five pounds, which should have effectively these these small denomination Scottish banknotes were fueling the economic revival of the Highlands, where you know there was no gold or silver circulating up in the Scottish Highlands or in the you know remote parts of Scotland. But these banknotes did circulate, and they were behind the revival of you know what had once been totally desolate parts of Scotland. In order to deal with a problem of English banking. London wanted to ban banks from issuing their own banknotes below at five pounds. You sort of shot my fox here. <laughs> well, you were going to you 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 you're just going to give a great pean of praise to paper money and say that it was a splendid idea having it. Yes, all right. Do you want it then. now or do yeah, you want it later when we're well, we, when we we're giving do, the awards? We can save it. We can save it up for the during award. the awards we can ceremony. Save it up. So Scott and successful, he basically he does indeed stop this reform in its tracks. He does, and he pays off his debts, and and also his wife was dying during all of this. So it's a it's a very remarkable story. But but anyway, that's Scott. I think we ought to talk about Ruskin because he is a a wonderful example of somebody who was both a brilliant critic of the economics of his day, and also completely batty. We're now in late Victorian times. Great prosperity. We are. You know, if there's one point I'd like people to take away from my book, and it's not me saying it, it's some of the, you know, today's greatest economists are saying, look, economics is far too important to leave to economists. Mm. Economists, you know, have believed some very odd things in the past, like the iron law of wages, which Ruskin absolutely tore into, I, I think, very successfully. Yeah. So, you know, he was a good critic. And he also came up with some important insights. For example, ilf. I love ilf. Ilf, the opposite of goods. Wealth. Wealth and ilf. Wealth, wealth and ilf. <laughs> but, but they do, you know, they're nothing but harmful. They destroy value. And also, I think, of shareholder capitalism in a way, because he says it is no more the function of the businessman to make a profit than the function of a priest to get his stipend. You know, what the businessman has to do is to make the best possible things he can make at the best possible price and look after his workmen and look after his customers, you know, and take pride in what he does and the profits will follow. Well, the one one thing I did like about Ruskin was where I agree with him. I, his view that business management, the the skills required to run a commercial business, were equivalent to those possessed by the subordinate officers of a ship or the curate of a country parish. So I, I'd be very interested today what he'd make of the enormous salaries paid to people who run water companies and the like. So those are the runners and riders. We've been through a number. I think we should try and we should try and round off by picking a winner. The three criteria for a winner that we should bear in mind. One is that the poet should have some important insight, that his views should be broadly connected with the real world and experience and not just vaporings. And he shouldn't be totally otherworldly and mad. So I'm afraid that excludes one or two, but uh, it still leaves quite a wide field. So, so, Neil, do you want to give us your pick? Uh, in yeah, well, economics? you've already revealed it to the audience. It's Walter Scott because of the how he understood the crucial importance of the banknote. And I think the banknote is one of the most brilliant inventions in economics because it gives value to something which is essentially valueless because it uh, only works if everybody believes that it is worth its face value. But the gain in efficiency over the alternative, which until electronics was essentially precious metal of some sort, is enormous. And it just makes the whole population 
that much better off because you don't need to struggle around with precious metal coins. You don't have the same degree of a vulnerability to it being taken off you. I think it's a thoroughly good idea and I'm delighted to see his face on the Bank of Scotland notes and thoroughly deserved too. One pick for Walter Scott. I'm just going to do mine quickly. I would go for Coleridge. I think he fulfills all my criteria for despite his sort of drug-addled reputation, he's got a real-life experience as the secretary to the governor of Malta in the early 19th century. So he has some idea about public administration. He understands that he's in favour of markets, but he understands that there need to be limits to markets. He is a believer in finding ways to contain and dampen the business cycle in ways that do not throw people out of work. He comes out with this great expression that people do not find their own level when people say, well, you know, the market will just work it through and a few people end up on the dole, who cares? I like his idea of Icarian credit and the fact that there is a unstable booms and crashes in the financial system because it's based almost entirely on confidence and hope. And when hope turns to despair, you get a sudden, you know, sort of whipsaw effect backwards. And I also think his stuff about the Factory Act is anti-sort of laissez-faire, going against the grain of contemporary thinking marks him out not only as a humanitarian but also as a good egg so i'm going to go i'm going with coleridge john who's your favorite i think you've picked my my two favorites but i i think for sort of breadth and and power of thought in the end i I think i would come for coleridge i mean i i love scott and um who knows what he'd have done if he'd uh, for today's audience because i mean the the you know the paper currency you know i think that has been convincingly won, and he was one of the great champions along the way. But Coleridge, I think we still, you know, really need to be listening to because, as you say, I mean, he's not like Shelley trying to sort of sweep away the whole market system. I mean, yeah. he, he accepts it, but he says, and in, in, in one of his um, pamphlets, and he says, if you possess more than is necessary for your own wants, more than your own wants ought to be felt by you as your own interests. Yes. He's saying this system, if you just base this system on the crude utilitarian calculus, you will end up, you know, flat on your nose. Mm. You know, there have got to be countervailing forces in a healthy society to contain the sort of dynamism of the economy and steer it in healthy directions. I think that is a message that, you know, we, we all need to, you know, keep in mind. And I, I feel that economists, you know, when they try to sort of lay down the law about absolutely every aspect of life with a sort of air of having these equations that are completely unanswerable, could do worse than to dip into Coleridge sometimes with, as you say, his, his remarks about, you know, at the end of the day, men, I feel, should be weighed and not counted. But particularly well, thought... suitable today, of course, <laughs> as the obesity crisis continues. Well, I'm very pleased. Uh, I shall forbear from gloating about the victory of my chap. But Scott was almost there. You know, it could have been a day. <laughs> yes, all right. Don't, don't be so patronising. <laughs> I just want to finish by thanking you for a very entertaining book. Yeah. And I look forward to the companion volume, which is The Economist's Guide to Poetry. That might be rather shorter. (laughs) (laughs) That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. 
Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app, as that will help new listeners find us.